there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. Just a couple of weeks ago, my husband and I visited a college in Ontario, and the headmaster that it's really in Canada, a school, a high school that goes through grade 13 is called a college, and so that's what this was actually. And the headmaster was telling us a little bit of the history of the school, and one of the things he told us was that when they had bought this very uh, run-down place, which had before been a Catholic school and hadn't been used, I guess, for some time, they really didn't fix it up the way it should have been fixed up. And two ladies came to visit and gave them some very helpful pointers. And he said, one of the things they said to us was, clean this place up. We don't see any flowers around. We don't see the grass properly cut. It's just not very neat looking. Now, why should that be important? Especially for a Christian school. Most of us like things looking neat and orderly. But there is a much deeper reason, I think, why God wants us to live in an orderly fashion. He is a God of order, and all we need to do is to look at the universe and see the perfect order in which God has placed things. Any astronomer can tell us where the stars belong tonight and where they were on the night of Jesus' birth and where they will be a couple of thousand years from now, where the planets belong what is going exactly the minute when there will be an eclipse of the moon or the sun. And I have a little chart on my desk that tells me the exact minute when high tide will be reached in the ocean in front of our house. So there's order in everything that God does. And the Bible says he's not the author of confusion. It's a visible sign of an invisible reality. Now, as Christians... We believe in visible signs of invisible realities, and one of the ones that we would all agree with and understand, at least in some measure, although it is a mystery, is the visible sign of bread and wine that we partake of in our communion services. The bread representing the body of Jesus Christ who was broken for us, and the wine representing his blood that was shed for us, visible signs of a deep, invisible mystery, the mystery of the incarnation. God took upon himself human flesh in order to live among us, to show us how we're supposed to live here in the world, and he died. He couldn't have died in any other form than in human flesh. And so that bread is a visible sign of that invisible reality. But order in our personal lives order in our homes is a visible sign of the invisible reality of our orderly submission to Jesus Christ. He can bring everything in our lives into order. And I'm sure there are many here this morning who could tell us stories of the disorder, moral, emotional, spiritual, and very possibly also physical disorder that you knew before you knew Jesus Christ. And he came in 
and things began to change. Now, that doesn't mean that everything suddenly changes overnight. But it is something which is a pattern that God has shown to us toward which we should always be working. And I am very blessed in having grown up in a home which was ordered and peaceful and happy. I am convinced that the most secure children in the world are the children who are disciplined. The most insecure children in the world are the ones who do not know where the lines are drawn. And if the line is drawn here on Monday, it may be drawn somewhere else on Tuesday. And on Wednesday, nobody will remember that there was a line drawn at all and everything is chaos. And those poor little children are insecure. God wants to give us security. Well, the invisible reality of order began in my parents' home by their understanding that they were under the authority of Christ himself. In fact, we had a little brass plate over the doorbell button on by the front door that said, Christ is the head of this house, the unseen guest at every meal, the silent listener to every conversation. And that sobered me when I would pay attention to that little maxim. The silent listener to every conversation, the unseen guest at every meal. And my parents were both submissive to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. They honored him as their head. He was honored in our home. His word was honored by my father's corralling all six of us every day, not once a day, but twice a day, to read the Bible to us and to pray with and for us. We also sang a hymn every morning, and that's why I love hymns. My parents taught us that you can learn theology very painlessly by singing the great hymns of the church. Now, I have nothing against the scriptural songs and some of the modern so-called worship songs, but many of them, uh, sometimes there are some good worship songs, but very many of them, if you analyze them, they really don't go anywhere. They don't move from point A to point B to point C. You find V and U in the same song. You find uh, a metaphor describing God as a rock in one place, and the next thing you know, he's a lamb, and there hasn't been any connection in between there. If you study the old hymns, you will see that they move very logically, and it's very dangerous to leave out a stanza, which Valerie and I did this morning. Um, But... We are blessed, our family was blessed by having learned theology very painlessly by singing. We never had to sit down and make ourselves memorize anything. We we sang straight through the hymn book and we started over again and sang straight through it again. And we sang all the stanzas. Anyway, all of that were, all of those things were visible signs of the invisible reality of our parents' submission to God himself. They knew God's order in the home as for the the relative positions of husband and wife. And there was never any discussion at all about that, as far as I can remember. And of course, in the last couple of decades, we've been forced to think and ponder and study the scriptures on the subject of the husband being the head of the house. And that hasn't changed since the word was given to us and the wife being submissive. The Bible clearly commands husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church, which means sacrifice. It's not bossism or tyranny or cruelty. 
It's not throwing your weight around. It's sacrifice. Love, which means sacrifice. And love always means sacrifice. And if I really love my husband, then I am going to sacrifice my desires to manipulate, to run everything. And we women, let's admit it, we have been wanting to run everything since the Garden of Eden. It was Eve's idea, remember, to eat the forbidden fruit. She went to her husband, suggested that they do this at the point where Adam was supposed to dig in his heels and say, no way. He just said, if that's what the little lady wants, that's what we'll do. And he wimped out. And the roles were reversed. The initiator became the responder. The responder became the initiator. And we women want to run everything. Well, my mother was a very strong-minded, very strong-willed, very attractive, intelligent, capable, just a phenomenally efficient woman. And she could have run everything in our home. But I do not remember any discussion whatsoever about the fact that my father was the head of the house. And when my father was home, there wasn't any question in our minds that he was in charge. When my father was not home, there was no question in our minds that my mother was in charge, not we. We were not running that house. So they conformed to the divine order. That's number one. Number one, of course, submission to the will of God. Number two, uh, conformity to God's order in relation to husband and wife. And it says, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands, not because they're so smart or so intelligent or so handsome or so physically stronger than you are, but because you are to submit to them as to the Lord because the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is head of the church. Now let's get it straight from the very beginning that the Howard family was a bunch of sinners. We were eight sinners living together under one roof. And lest anything else I say this morning it gives you the impression that I think the Howard family was absolutely perfect and that you should do everything exactly the way we do it, I'd like to disabuse you of that notion right up front. Um, There are many things in my book which I think will be helpful as principles, and you can examine the principle and decide how this particular principle may be applied in your life in California, which is a very different story from my life during the Depression in Philadelphia. But the principle is an eternal one. And let's face it, we're all sinners, aren't we? We are born with a corrupt human nature. We are born rebels, we are born barbarians, and it's the job of parents to make little civilized human beings out of these little uncontrollable barbarians. <laughs> or to put it in another way, it's our job to give saints to God. God has given us these little children, and we, in obedience to God, in submission to him, are to give back a saint to God in this mysterious little child that has come into our lives. And I am more and more uh, mystified, baffled, and fascinated by the mystery of each little individual, each personality. Because having had only one child myself, I suppose that I probably unconsciously imagined that if I had had the big family that I had hoped to have, they would have all been exactly like Valerie. 
And Valerie's family has proved to me that nothing could be further from the truth. She's got seven very, very different little children. But our human nature is corrupt. It is a thing needing change. And there is no more perfect context for that change to take place than at home. And if the change doesn't take place at home, the validity of our claims to desire to change would certainly be open to serious question. The real test of the reality of our spiritual life is at home. You might say what people said to me, a couple of people said to me last night when I was speaking in Downey, oh, Elizabeth, you are my model. You are this and that and the other thing. And I, I say to them, if you knew me the way God knows me, you wouldn't be saying that. Or if you knew me the way Lars knows me, you wouldn't be saying that. Pray that the Lord will make me what you think I am. <laughs> we are all of us corrupt sinners. And my, the great question that I would like to ask this audience is I would want to ask every audience that I ever speak to, are you ready to be changed? Are you willing to alter your life in any way that God indicates to you here in this place today that you need to alter it? There will be no changes until there is a willingness to change. The meekness to be taught, the humility to come to God with an empty cup and say, here's my cup, Lord, fill it up, and I'll take anything you put in there. I'll take it. Are you ready to be changed and to grow? Are you ready to grow into conformity with Jesus Christ? And that's the only reason we're here. That's the only reason we're here on earth, that we might glorify God. Some of you I know are Presbyterians in this room, and some of you I presume are not, but if you ever have been exposed to the Westminster Shorter Catechism, you know the first question, what is the chief end of man? Maybe it's not the first question, but it's on the first page, or pretty close to the beginning. What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And how can we glorify God unless we live in conformity to the will of God? Total impossibility, unless we are willing to live in conformity with the will of God. And, and the way we discover the will of God is not only through this book, and certainly this is our primary source, and through the teaching of the Holy Spirit, but through other people. You know, God teaches us mostly through other people. Even if you say, well, I learned it all from the Bible, the chances are very good that somebody pointed out to you something in the Bible you would never have seen by yourself. And all these wonderful books that you read and the tapes that you listen to and the endless seminars that you go to, what are they telling you? Well, I would hope that you're listening to the sort of thing that comes from this book, but still, we are the media. The medium through each, each of us is a medium through whom God wants to teach somebody else. And that is not necessarily something to which we are always open. If God wants to teach you through an older woman in the church who comes to you with great compassion and genuine love and says, your child is out of control, 
he is disturbing this church. Now, I don't know anything about anybody in this church, so I'm not certainly not saying anything to anybody specifically. But if somebody did say something like that or anything else, any correction or pointing out of some failure on your part or flaw, what would your reaction be? <laughs> well, is she going to tell me what to do? The fact is that maybe God sent her to tell you exactly that because he told you about five times through his word, but you weren't listening. So anyway, are you ready to be changed and to grow? Now, any revelation of my sin, anything whatsoever about myself that needs to be changed, that somebody else might point out to me, anything that destroys my illusions about myself, I ought to welcome with thanksgiving. But you know what? That doesn't come naturally to me, and I doubt that it comes naturally to any of you. We don't naturally welcome criticism. But we need to if we're going to be changed. And when we say, Lord, I want to do your will, and I will do it, in every way that I know, I will receive what you show me. The chances are very good that God is going to show you something through somebody else, maybe through your husband, maybe through your children. One dear lady came to me in North Carolina, and she said, you know, my children pointed out to me that I scream at them all the time. And she said, I didn't know I was doing that. And when, I, when they said that to me, it made me furious but then I realized I had to be furious at myself because I grew up in a home where everybody screamed at everybody else. And I'm just used to that. And I was programmed that way. And she said, it has been a major effort for me to quit screaming at my children. She would never have known that if her children hadn't pointed it out. So, a Christian home is a place where Christ is honored by, and I have a list of ten things, by which we honor Christ. We honor Christ in a Christian home by, number one, our acknowledgement of his lordship. Who is the head of your house? By our reverence. Who he is puts me in my place. I think this is what reverence, this is what the essence of reverence is. My being put in my place. And if I need to be put down, I need to be put down in order to reverence Christ. Don't you feel a sense of awe and reverence when you see moonlight on the ocean? When you look at the majesty of mountains? When you see an exquisite butterfly? Or you study the tiniest flower? Are you awed by it? If not, you're not very humble. You really haven't been put in your place. Maybe you've never thought enough about the kind of mind and imagination it took to dream up a whale. My two granddaughters and I went out, and Lars went out last, when was it, Monday or Tuesday, and we saw whales. To me, it's an overwhelming experience. In fact, I've, this is about the fourth, fourth time that I've been out, and I said after the second time, I'm never going out again. It is so overwhelming, I don't ever want to get used to it. And I don't think there's much danger that I will. 
But reverence as to who God is puts me in my place. Number three, we honor him by respect. In the very simple sense in which we would respect a guest as, unfortunately, we don't respect each other so often. We will do all sorts of things for a guest who comes into the house that we wouldn't dream of doing for each other. And that's tragic, really, isn't it? But at least the guest's coming reminds us of how we really ought to be treating each other. Respect. We wouldn't do certain things if a guest is there that we would do when they weren't. So how do we respect the presence of Christ at our table in our home? How would, and respecting a guest, for example, is how, how do you look at him? Does, do you look at him when he's talking to you? Any young mothers here ever had any problems teaching your children to look at people when they're talking to you? Well, I can certainly remember that necessity at times. Valerie, I want you to look at me. And I would look straight in her eyes and tell her whatever it was she needed to know at that point. And my parents were always telling us, you must look at people when you shake hands with them. You don't just come and stand there and go like this. <laughs> you look at them. You listen to them. We were taught to be seen and not heard at our table unless we had an intelligent question to ask of a guest. And an intelligent question was certainly permitted from a two-year-old. We were encouraged to ask questions of guests because that's how we learn so many wonderful things from many of these godly people. My parents took very seriously hospitality as a command in Scripture, and we were blessed by having, I think, 42 countries represented in our guest book, which I still have. But we had to learn to look at them, we had to learn to listen to them, and how would you speak of a guest in his presence? How do you speak of Christ? Now ask yourself, how do you speak of other people? Is it the way you would speak of Christ? Jesus said, inasmuch as you've done it to one of the least of these, you've done it to me. Number four, praise. We honor him by praise. And praise is appreciation, enjoyment that springs from love. Every, everybody likes to praise a good book that you've read or a diet that you've discovered that really worked or some method of doing your housework that you just somehow or other never had thought of before and you say, I've just discovered the most wonderful thing and you call it wonderful and you tell somebody else about it. Do you praise God? Enjoyment, appreciation, springing from a heart of love. Well, if you praise him, then number five would naturally follow gratitude. Thank you, Lord. Have you ever flown any place and had your baggage go someplace else? Well, that's what happened to us yesterday. So if any of you saw me around here in a different outfit before the meeting, why, it's because I was wearing what I put on at 4 o'clock yesterday morning, and my bag arrived after I got here. And I said, thank you, Lord, because I have to speak again this afternoon and tonight and tomorrow and not this afternoon, excuse me, tonight and tomorrow, and I just thought, well, I sure would hate to be wearing what I put on yesterday morning. But thank the Lord for every little thing. And there are so many big things, too. 
And this hymn that we've sung, Praise My Soul, the King of Heaven, to His Feet Your Tribute Bring, I use very often in my early morning prayers. I just feel inadequate to come up with the words to express the gratitude that I feel to God. And so very often I begin with a hymn like this. I don't mean I sing it, but I just repeat the words. I know the words by heart because I have repeated them so many times and we sang it so many times. But you need to learn hymns and memorize them and use them in your prayers and your praises. And you'll be amazed how many hymns are actual prayers as well as praise. And I particularly like the fourth verse, which we left out just because of the uh, limitations of time. Angels, oh, unfortunately, this is one of those mutilated versions that you've been given. The original says, angels help us to adore him. Angels, comma, we are addressing the angels, help us to adore him. Ye behold him face to face. Sun and moon bow down before him, dwellers all in time and space. Now, I repeated this these words one time on my radio program, and I got some letters from people saying, who are you telling us to bow down to the sun and moon? I'm not telling us to bow down to the sun and moon. I'm asking the sun and moon to join with us in bowing down to praise God because that is scriptural. It comes straight out of the Psalms. You know, there's just all sorts of things. O ye floods, adore him. O ye rain, adore him. O ye clouds, adore him. O ye sun, O ye moon. Uh, can't remember what number it is, but it's one of the last Psalms. In the book of Psalms, it just goes through all these various facets of nature. And so we can say, sun and moon bow down before him, dwellers all in time and space. Now, this is all right, what they've done. Saints, triumphant, bow before him, gathered in from every race. But it doesn't spark my imagination nearly as much as sun and moon bow down before him, dwellers all in time and space. Have you ever thought about the fact that the sun is a creature living in time and space just as you and I do? Not a conscious creature necessarily, not one that necessarily, I mean, we really don't know whether the sun in any conscious way praises God or whether the sun has a consciousness. But he, it, he, it is a dweller in time and space created by the same hands that created you and me. So it's not only angels, cherubim, seraphim, all the powers of heaven, all the martyrs, all the saints, the prophets, priests, kings, all those that have gone before us. We join our one little feeble voice when we're all by ourselves saying our prayers with the universal prayers of the church. Doesn't that thrill you? Isn't that tremendous when you, you get down before, before the Lord with your teeny-weeny little list of teeny-weeny little concerns about my teeny-weeny little family, and all of a sudden you think about the fact that cherubim and seraphim never stop saying, holy, holy, holy. Ceaseless praise. And I join my voice with them. So, I get carried away. Gratitude. Number six, loyalty. How loyal are you to Jesus Christ? Especially when somebody might think you're just a wee bit weird. Now, Christians are very weird people. We have to be weird because we live in two worlds. We live in this visible world and we think of it and interpret it and understand it in terms of an invisible world. And there's always tension between those two worlds. How am I supposed to be a spiritual, godly mother when my entire day is taken up with cooking and cleaning and washing and doing diapers and taking care of little kids? 
how am I supposed to be spiritual? By exactly the way Jesus Christ was spiritual. When he walked here on earth, he got his feet dusty, he got tired, he sat down by a well, he ate and drank with ordinary men. He was mocked, he was ridiculed, he was thought extremely peculiar. All of these things we ought to be willing to follow him in. So we need to be loyal. And there are times when our loyalty to Jesus Christ means that we cannot be as loyal as we would like to be to our friends, to our church, and to our family. Does that shock you? God is our first loyalty. Friends, church, family are very important. But let's do perhaps more praying than we've done in asking God to help us sort out the demands of all those things. How do we sort out? How do we balance all these things? How often people ask me that question. That's a question only God can answer for you. I can't tell you how it will work in your case, but let me tell you this, if you want to, God will show you how to. And that goes for everything I have to say today. If you want to do what God wants you to do, he will give you the how-to. If there is a want-to, God supplies the how-to. Number seven, submission. I am his property. He is Lord of my life, my time, my possessions, my love, my work, my family. He is Lord. And so all of that is brought into his presence, submitted and prayed over. Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? That was Paul's first prayer when he was smitten to the ground by the vision of Jesus Christ. Lord, what do you want me to do? Submission. Number eight, acceptance. Whatever God gives me, I'll take it. And that is an explicit voluntary act. It has nothing to do with feelings. Acceptance. Yesterday, when we were flying from Boston, we, our flight was delayed by an hour out of Boston, and we missed the next two flights to Southern California in St. Louis because we got in too late, and consequently that's why our baggage went off. But as I was talking to Christiana and Elizabeth, they were very cheerful and wonderful. I mean, I often think that Elizabeth, my grand, oldest granddaughter, has far too many of her grandmother's natural traits for comfort. And one of my natural traits would be to be, get very upset about missing a plane. And Elizabeth and Christiana were just having the time of their lives, and they said, well, we don't have to go anyplace, you know, it's fine with us. So we had a good time, but I pointed out to them that things like that, any kind of inconvenience or disappointment, is our opportunity where God is saying to you, I'm running this. You're not at the mercy of TWA. I've got the whole world in my hands. I have a reason for this. Now, don't write down a question and say, how did God explain to you the reason why you had to miss your planes yesterday? He doesn't necessarily explain it, and he doesn't have to, because he's working on a pattern of which we see only the underside. And someday he's going to show us the other side. So we just say, yes, Lord. Number nine, contentment. If you accept it, then rest content 
with such things as ye have, the Bible says. You can spend your whole life wishing for things you didn't have, and God wants you to be content with what you do have. So you can spend your life complaining about what you don't have or thanking God for what you do have, which characterizes your life. Number 10, trust. And this is beautifully expressed in the hymn that I've also chosen for this morning, Be Still, My Soul. And it was Christiana who pointed that out yesterday when we were stuck there for several hours in St. Louis. She just said to me very quietly, Be Still, My Soul. Now, we had sung that hymn every night while they were at our house, so it was fresh in her mind, but it thrilled me that that 10-year-old made that application at that point. Trust in the little things. There is no better context for the shaping of Christians than in a Christian home. The family life is the acid test of the reality. So now all ten things that I've just given you, let me run through them just in case anybody missed anything, acknowledges lordship, reverence, respect, praise, gratitude, loyalty, submission, acceptance, contentment, and trust, all of those entail obedience. That's why I didn't put that down as a separate thing, because you can't do any of those things without also being obedient. Now, the Christian home is a microcosm of God's universe, and I've spent practically all my time talking about the way God does things with us and how we are to respond to God and the applications go right through the same list. How are we to respond in our Christian homes? God has given a hierarchy even in the universe. The Bible says that he made greater lights and lesser lights. And he put the husband as the head and the wife as the one to be under his subjection, under subjection to her husband. There's no indication that God loves the moon better, less than he loves the sun, or that he likes the sun better than he likes the moon, or that we are of less value any more than the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ are of less value than God in the three persons of the Trinity. And yet the Holy Spirit witnesses always to Christ, and Christ submits himself always to the Father. So there is that order even in the Trinity. Now, how do we regard our husbands? And I would just throw out that question, and you ask yourself in the silence of your heart how those ten things that refer to our relationship with God might also apply to our relationship to our husbands. How do we talk about them to somebody else? Would we give the impression that we really do respect them? How do we listen when our husbands are talking? Do we trust them? What if they've made the wrong decision and we're supposed to submit to them? Now I want to ask you this question, ladies. Is there anybody here who's ever had a problem with submission where she agreed 100% with her husband? Does the word submission occur to your mind at that time? Of course not. But the big question that everybody's always asking is, how am I supposed to submit to him if I disagree with him? You don't have to submit to him any other time. <laughs> right? I mean, isn't that self-evident? Are you prepared to trust God to lead your husband 
to lead you. And for you men here in the audience today, I would say you have a tremendously serious responsibility. You're much worse off than we women. All we have to do is submit. You guys have to answer to God. Because God is going to ask you why you made such and such a decision which affected your wife and your children if, in fact, you had made a decision without prayer, without seriously considering how it would affect them. You're the one at whose desk the buck stops. And to me, that's an awesome responsibility, and I'm glad it's not mine. For most of my life, it has been. I've been single far more than I've been married. But thank God, when I have a husband, the buck stops there. <laughs> Acceptance. So he has made a decision that was not your first choice. Do you let him know for the next two weeks how discontented you are with that? Well, I think you can make the own, your own applications there. How do we regard our husbands? I think they are analogous. And to bring it right down to children, are you really the authority in your home? Have you established the authority of the word? And that we will take up in the next talk, too. How to love your children. And so with that, I will stop. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember, the eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms.